0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lameez Abdeladi from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Sabri Chifchi, Michael Wietrich, and Ammar Shanaile about their book, Beyond Piety and Politics, Religion, Social Relations, and Public Preferences in the Middle East and North Africa, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2022. Sabri, Mike, and Ammar, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. for having us.
2: So um, I wonder if we could go around uh, and you could begin the interview by just telling us a bit about yourselves. Uh, Sabri, let's begin with you.
3: Okay, thank you. First of all, thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure being here and finally catching up with my (laughs) co-authors. So, uh, my name is Sabri Cifci. I'm a professor of political science and Michael uh, Suleiman Chair at Kansas State University. Um, uh, I like to do research um, on um, Islam and politics, as well as Turkish politics and middle politics. Uh, I also teach the subjects. Um, I think that's about it, yeah. Mike.
4: Yeah, I'm uh, Michael Wietrich. I'm an associate professor of political science. I'm also the associate director of the Center for Global and International Studies at the University of Kansas. Um, I, my research is, I like to do study campaigns and elections from various perspectives in Turkey in particular, um, but other places more broadly, I look at institutions in politics in Iran, populism, religion and gender and politics more comparatively broadly in the MENA and, and beyond.
2: And um, Ammar?
1: I'm Ammar Ashamayli, I'm an assistant professor at uh, the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. Uh, my work uh, revolves around uh, authoritarian politics, for non-democratic politics, political behavior, uh, and political economy at the micro level.
2: Well, it's wonderful to have you uh, three uh, on the show. Um, so, and you've really sort of pooled your expertise to write a fantastic book uh, that I'm looking forward to diving into. Do you mind if we start by just talking about how you came to write this book?
3: Um, I can actually start uh, to answer this question. So, uh, I knew uh, Mike and Amar separately, uh, three of us didn't know each other, you know, uh, collectively at this point. And I was working on some projects about religion and politics in MENA, then I, you know, uh, met with Mike who was doing similar research, particularly about Islamist political parties. And then uh, in another occasion, in a conference, I met with Amar, whose research was so fascinating because they were looking at religion, and uh, I believe in this case was radical organizations. So as I was kind of, you know, uh, thinking about my own um, interest, I thought, why not? You know, these three guys could come together and maybe write, you know, an article. So the idea was, you know, uh, writing an article, and then we had this uh, morning coffee in Midwest Political Science Association meeting. And then I will let my co-authors take it from there.
1: So I can give you my side of it, because <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, um, actually uh, I so I was on a panel at MPSA uh, with uh, with Subri. He was just really, really kind and really nice, and um, it was actually the first time I ever emailed somebody I met at a conference uh, afterwards. Uh, and so I emailed, uh, I emailed somebody, this is before our lead article was it was published uh, that revolved around the same topic. Uh, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd be interested in, in collaborating with you. I'm, I have three different things that I'm looking at." And he said, uh, after I, I emailed him, uh, I, I'm guessing he he spoke to Mike, and he said, "Actually, I have this project." Project I'm working on uh, with Mike uh, and then I was sort of brought into the fold on that and that was uh, um, and, and from there uh, I remember if I'm remembering correctly we uh, we went to uh, MESA uh, Middle East Studies Association meeting and we presented a paper a follow-up on, on our earlier work and that's where it became clear to us that this should be a book
4: <laughs> yeah 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 I think that was that we were almost forced into writing the book <laughs> because the, we had the, we were discovering so much, right? In that kind of down the path of of what we were thinking in our first article, and we realized there was more to be said. But we also realized that it couldn't be said easily in one-off articles. It really, you needed to really unpack a lot of things uh, together. And I think as we move forward on the project, we just said that it just makes so much sense that this this becomes a book, and and we, we went right to work on it.
3: And can I add like one thing here, and we also very quickly discovered that there is actually really great working chemistry between three of us, you know, something that's not easy to, you know, um, have in in academia. So it was from the article, it was so clear from the beginning that this chemistry was magic and, you know, it was moving so quickly and, you know, branching into um, different projects.
2: That's uh, that's inspiring to hear. Uh, So let's see if we can sort of pick apart this really intricate uh, argument uh, that you have here. So the book pushes back against what you describe as a linear view of religiosity that dominates much of the literature on religion and politics in the Middle East and North Africa region. Um, What do you mean when you refer to this linear view of religiosity?
3: Uh, let me actually start, and hopefully my co-authors can also jump in. You know, to um, you know, follow up. Uh, so the main idea here is that uh, look, religion plays an important role uh, in shaping political preferences across the Muslim world, and there is a good deal of research that was published and is kind of in progress now. Uh, but our problem with this was that there was so much ambivalence, right? And we know we were critical of. Uh, this, this uh, you know, one-dimensional approaches to religion. You take a number of survey questions and you call it religiosity. Our point was that this is not really capturing the nuance, right? So we thought this was a linear progress where X is related to Y and that's it. So religion matters or does not matter. So we want to, um, you know, go beyond this simple approach. And, um, you know, for us, it was in one way... Uh, a path toward getting over these essentialist approaches and one-dimensional approaches. We knew that there was a lot of diversity and richness when it comes to religiosity, the way that people understand it, the way that they live it, the way that they practice it. So this was the starting point to kind of being able to capture this nuance, this multidimensionality, and and, uh, explaining to the readers that when we say religiosity, it is really a lot of different things for different people.
2: Right. So it's more than just constructing an index based on how many times people are going to the mosque or how often they're reading the Quran, right? right. Um, and it's really central uh, to this book, this notion that you call religious outlooks. So you argue that it's more fruitful to orient research around, around this notion of uh, religious outlooks. How do you understand that term, religious outlooks, or how do you define it?
3: I am looking at Mike yeah. I think he might be laughing. Uh I w-
4: I wish I w- would ha- have had our pre- precise definition right in front of us but the 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 notion is really this this understanding uh this framework that we that uh people of faith have when they when they understand the the world right the the combination of their religious preferences and understandings and how those kind of as an entity also influence other things like their attitudes toward uh, politics and and uh, economic preferences and and that sort of thing I don't so I, yeah. I, can,
3: I can't help you here I have the, the exact wording in front of me <laughs> which says religious outlooks uh, refer to uh, cognitive frameworks. For understanding the role of religion in relation to social and political orders and norms, mm-hmm.
1: yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Thank you for that. So you yeah. note that the relationship between religion and individual attitudes is relational. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you describe this interface between mm-hmm. religious communities, the state, and religious outlooks?
4: I can. I can jump in on that one. I so there's a you know when people make have attitudes and preferences we assume right the 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 assumption behind that is then if if those attitudes and preferences are framed by religion then it's also our cognitive attitudes or the substance of our beliefs that that factor into our other preferences and attitudes but one of the things that we see um and particularly in We see this also in in research now outside of uh, Muslim majority countries in, in America and elsewhere that there's an understanding that like we're our religion, particularly on these big questions, because religious religious divine texts tell us a lot of things. They tell us a lot of specific things but they also leave a lot of ambiguity in terms of like, how does this interpret and how should this be prioritized and applied to our current life, our current context? And because of that, um, the way that religion influences our um, everyday perspectives is a lot more strongly influenced by how our association with religion with our association with religious communities, how that how that plays out in our particular context, it, it causes this kind of interactive filtering mechanism that that influences how we develop our our attitudes. So, you know, if you if you think about someone a, a religious person in a various religious community, how that community uh, interacts with the state has a lot. Says a lot about like their attitudes toward political preferences. Also, when they think about, you know, elements of politics, how that community relates to the society at large, also has a big impact on this. And and what sort of incentives or disincentives are out there in terms of um, that religious individual. And his community and how that community will thrive or you know move forward as a religious community um, so i'll stop yeah. there and let my colleagues jump in well, uh
3: yeah i think i i, I can uh, very briefly just say that so the idea is look you you know we talk about religiosity we say people pray they read the quran in the muslim world and this is how we should understand what they think about politics or economics and so on but beyond that, as Mike was pointing to, these people are real people. They have connections to a social order. They are in constant relation with the, with the politics, with the state. And this is how they define what their religiosity is going to be and if it's going to have an influence, what kind of influence it will have. So this relational nature in relation to the, the social environment and the political environment is key here this is what i think um more than anything else more importantly we are bringing to the to the table to the discussion
1: mm-hmm. yeah i mean on so this uh, yeah no, no. Uh, I just want to add a, a brief note, because I think uh, you guys covered it uh, pretty much. But, you know, on, on this point, uh, I think it also um, needs to be distinguished from sort of other measures that have been developed around fundamentalism or thinking about things in terms of fundamentalism. And so it differentiates us from those kinds of measures as well is this social quality. And so in a way, it's more about um, how it's, you know, it's, it's less about what I think religion should, uh, says I should do, and more about what I think religion says others should do, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and so and so, I think that's one of the, the core features, I think, that, that uh, differentiates uh, our measure and our way of uh, conceptualizing this.
2: Thank you for that. So I think your argument is going to become even clearer as we go through the empirics, right? Uh, and your empirics begin uh, with a case comparison of nashabendi communities in Turkey. Can you tell us about what you find there?
4: Well, yes. Uh, I think it's a very interesting case to look at because you you have these communities that essentially um, operate from the same substantial doctrine, right? The same understanding of how things should be ordered and their relationship uh, with God and community. Um, but what's different about each of these communities is that their their particular a- application of how they live and how they operate in society is different from each group and what we see is how that society how that association structures itself leads to individuals within those communities behaving in patterned ways toward politics having having particular Pattern political attitudes that would be consistent or logical based on how that group situates itself within society, and so um, the interesting thing about the the not this these Nox Naqsh, uh Sufi communities in Turkey, uh, which you know they they're the Noxibendis are a vibrant part of. Uh, Part of Islam and how it operates with, within Turkey. So these are rather, these are, you know, not insignificant communities. Uh, but we can see that, like, not only do the do the their attitudes toward po- politics differentiate from group to group at a particular period of time, the groups' attitudes and their interpretations of politics also change. Their attitudes and actions change over time as the state changes in its relationship to them, as, as they gain opportunities or lose opportunities. Uh, and so it was um, very helpful for us too, to kind of document and pay attention to how these these groups were interacting with the state and the individuals within those groups and their, the, their patterns of, of political preferences and activities uh, kind of come from that.
3: And there is also um, you know we, when we look at over time, we see like these communities could be in different places, you know, vis-a-vis the state or in their like you know social uh, social relations. So it was fascinating for me you know to as we were writing this chapter to realize that there is really layer upon layer complexity. And it's not static. So this is our starting point, right? And I think the Nakshib and the communities in Turkey was the perfect case for demonstrating that.
4: Thank
2: you. Um, so you follow that by empirically deriving four categories of religious outlooks. Um, I want to ask you to describe those for us.
3: I, I think I can do that. Uh, before you know the, the the brief description, I should say that this is building on a lot of relevant literature. Right? You know, we kind of pull in. Uh, different studies uh, from the, the Middle East politics, uh, the study of religion, generally the study of religion in the American context and, and elsewhere. Uh, so basically the idea here is that we can understand religion based on uh, the role of religion in uh, private and public space, how people you know find the role for religion in this dimension. And also... We can understand religion based on people's preferences, whether they want to fit in a society or whether they would like a, you know, pluralist, multicultural setting. Right. So we are basically looking at a political dimension, which looks at the role of religion from a private, public dimension. And we look at the social relations perspective, whether people prefer conformity versus plurality in their societies. So based on this two by two classification, we come up with four uh, groups, uh, religious individualist, social communitarian, post-Islamist and religious uh, communitarian. In a nutshell, religious individualists are people who are more supportive of religious pluralism and less supportive of religious influence in public sphere. We have social communitarians who are less supportive of religious pluralism in society, but they also are a strong have strong preference for social conformity. Uh, And also we have religious communitarians, uh, the individuals uh, in this category are uh, less supportive of pluralism in society, but more supportive of religious influence in the public sphere. So basically that we are looking at... um, and I'm going to leave the post-Islamist to my co-authors because I'm still uh, I, you know, trying to really uh, come up with a better you know, explanation of this. But in a, in a nutshell, then, we are looking at whether people find a public or private role for religion or whether they want a, a social conformist you know, understanding of religion versus a pluralistic understanding. So maybe Mike and Amar can talk about the, the post-Islamist category here.
0: Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off. I well,
4: I think, f- for example, I, we, we use post-Islamist because I think the 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 two by two category lends that particular uh, sector to, to fit the definition that Asif Bayat gives in his discussion of uh, post-Islamism, which is that the support for pluralism, right? other views, uh, other perspectives, while at the same time supporting that the notion of like religion being a, a, an important part of public life at the same time. So ha- basically having both uh, both of the, operating with both of those assumptions at the same time um, is, is kind of how, how we see that category.
2: And I'll just mention here, um, you know, one of the things that's so impressive about this book is the the variety of different methodological approaches that you uh, embed in these analyses. So my understanding is that uh, the way that you derive these uh, these uh, religious outlooks is you're relying on survey data, um, and then you're using these sophisticated methods of uh, latent class analysis and factor analysis to try to sort of uh, summon right these these categories from the data. Um, so, following that, you explore the cross-national distribution of religious outlooks uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, can you tell us about how that helps you understand the determinants of religious outlooks?
3: I think that goes to the, the essence of the argument, right? So, one of our main, um, uh, you know, position is that religion should be determined according to the social and institutional context. So uh, the idea here is that if we can show these differences, showing that, you know, based on different, you know, contextual variables, we see variation in the way that people understand and practice religion, then we are on solid ground here. As you mentioned a minute ago, we look at um, a number of surveys, basically pulling questions, not only about, uh, you know, Directly religious uh, subjects, but also about how people, uh, you know, reflect this in their um, in their attitudes. Things like um, religious practice should be private. When a person changes his religion, he should be penalized with that. Do we agree that we you know we should have be have respect for other religious beliefs in societies? So what we are trying to get at here is to understand you know, this, this, this diversity and nuance. But then uh, we also want to look at contextual factors, right? Uh, things like um, what's the state's religion uh, relation with religion and how people make sense of this relation. Or uh, we also um, uh, look at um, uh, you know, generally like the economic context, right? Uh, and you know a number of other you know contextual factors, and our latent class analysis from the cross-sectional perspective actually confirmed what we were suspecting all along. Right, there is a lot of diversity, contextual differences, and very very nuanced ways of you know uh, religion uh, and how it's understood in in, in different in different contexts.
2: Um, so then you move to thinking about sort of the the. Uh, influence of religious outlooks on um, sort of public attitudes, right? So you look at uh, how religious outlooks connect with support for democracy, right? Um, and I believe uh, you begin there with a formal model. Is that right?
1: <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, so basically the, the core idea here is to take these uh, positions and think about what they represent. And obviously... You know, people don't necessarily, this is essentially a typology, right? Uh, at least at the theoretical level. And people don't fall very neatly within these, uh, within, you know, necessarily within classes. They have probabilities within these classes. And so well, the way we kind of think about this is to model it out, thinking about, all right, you know, how would somebody's preference for, conformity affect their sort of behavior? And what would somebody's preference for um, uh, sort of an increased sort of public representation of religion affect their behavior? And how should this map onto you know, what we see in terms of these latent groups or in terms of these religious out, uh, outlooks? Um, and so the, the core argument here is essentially that um, uh, a preference for conformity should fairly systematically lead to a preference for more authoritarian regimes or a preference for authoritarian, um, um, a more authoritarian system. Uh, whereas a preference for public goods shouldn't, uh, our religious public goods or religious uh, presence in the public sphere shouldn't necessarily consistently be pointing us in that direction. And one of the core reasons is that the context matters uh, and democratization itself can uh, produce an increase Uh, in this kind of religious expression, or it can produce a decrease. And so we shouldn't expect people to necessarily, um, uh, be influenced, uh, in particular by this dimension. This, and this is kind of what our, and this is what our results point to as well. Um, and so for a person who's a religious, <clears throat> i wearing down a little bit, um, uh, the person who's a, a religious individualist, we shouldn't necessarily expect uh, a, a highly pious person whose outlook is that, you know, uh, my decisions are my own. And, you know, I shouldn't, you know, and other people have the, the should have the freedom to do what they want Uh for religion to necessarily influ- uh, uh, produce negative sentiment towards uh, um, uh, towards democracy. And in fact, we should see an increased level of support for democracy among this individual who's now given the, the freedoms associated with democracy uh, um, uh, that allow them to place themselves at that spot, at that position that they would prefer to be in. Um, and so, uh, and the same should apply to, to some degree with uh, um, our post-Islamist category. Um, our post-Islamist category is the category that uh, wants to have that freedom to associate with a certain group, wants to be, wants an increase in religion's public uh, presence, but also wants to ensure that they are able to, to place themselves uh, in, you know, to, to practice religion the way that they see fit. Um, and so, uh, and, and our results uh, corroborate this.
2: Thank you. Now, um, you also, um, or I should say, a- after that, you sort of zoom in on two countries uh, that, that recently experienced sort of massive political change, Egypt and Tunisia, to look at um, uh, temporal variation in this relationship between religious outlooks and attitudes towards democracy. So what are your findings there?
3: But for basically, uh, and I think you know, th- this was a very interesting chapter to write because we, you know, when we were talking about this project, the the discussion of Arab Spring in academia was still at its peak, but there was still so much confusion, right? And we knew that religion mattered there, but you know, there was no systematic, unfortunately, up to that point, you know, account of it. We are seeing better accounts now, obviously. But the the main goal of this chapter was to show that. If we are right in proposing that uh, religious outlooks are influenced by the context, by social and political change, then what uh, case other than the Tunisia in Egypt where we can see this change happening and whether this is affecting the religious outlooks or not? And uh, so this was the main um, you know, main goal. And we ac- actually found a lot of support here using the Arab Barometer surveys as using our a fourfold categorization of religious outlooks, uh, we found that indeed it is the case that context and time matter, that, you know, these uh, outlooks are not static but they evolve and people, you know, change their sort of position vis-à-vis the state and the social relations as the change is happening on the ground. We also find that um, uh, the, the, if we are to understand the role of religion in broader political preferences, we have to look at you know the change in the ground as in you know significant change has happened in Tunisia and Egypt. Uh, so uh, in effect, I think looking at Tunisia and Egypt as the cases of change and temporal variability in religious outlooks showed us that religiosity is indeed contextual and relational. Right. Because, you know, looking at some of this, you know, analysis that we presented here, we see that uh, before, during and after the Arab Spring, we see significant differences in the religious outlooks and their distribution in both in both societies. So it was really great to see this, you know, as a scholar, you, you know, theorize about these issues and you know, running the analysis, uh, seeing this was so, uh, so exciting. Uh, for me. And um, I want well, basically, you know, Mike and I went back and forth, uh, you know, writing this chapter. Maybe we can also share some of this, uh, this insights about how we, you know, come to a conclusion after uh, so much analysis. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, it's a very interesting chapter, you know, and I think you're, you're always trapped a little bit by the data that you have. It's nice that we, we had what we did, but Uh, you know, and and to some extent, too, like what we're arguing really is is that attitudes change, right? That should be obvious, like who's going to really challenge that. But often the way that we get, you know, when we think about public opinion, particularly in areas where it's kind of hard to get those surveys done, you get locked into these snapshots of people's attitudes and you just kind of assume that's the way it is. But I think that chapter, you know, chapter six really points out effectively that no things can change in very important ways in a short amount of time right as as political context change and so we don't need to necessarily some of this um so, you know there's been a history of uh, uh, of essentializing attitudes maybe toward to, toward countries in the middle east and north africa where you just assume okay this this is you know, quote unquote, the, this is the way that people think, right? Like, and it's things aren't going to change, but we're able to see and show in a lot of different ways that that things can change, and that they can change in really important and you know, uh, predictable ways.
3: And I also want to share like a fun memory. I'm probably going to get to that in the end, but I, I, I cannot resist. So in the process of, you know, changing the analysis, looking back and forth, I mean, we were very like, you know, uh, careful, right? To make sure that we are using the right questions. We are doing all the tests uh, and things like that. So uh, I think a couple of times, right? You know, we uh, changed this analysis a couple of times because we were like, we were not sure about the questions, uh, about the classifications, you know, So it was basically like, you know, many, many different, um, uh, let's say, approaches here between the three of us. And at some point, you know, and Mike has a really very careful, you know, eye here. Uh, He was like, oh, you are missing that point, right? So this probably should be under the religious individual. It's not social communitarian. And in one occasion, I have a note. I was looking at the files this morning. I have a note on one of my Excel files saying Mike is not going to ask me to change this again. He promised, <laughs> so, but I, I mean, it is kind of really, you know, tells you, you know, how much you know, effort work went into that. And, you know, we back and forth, we kind of always try to find, uh, you know, the, the best methodological approach um, to make sure that, you know, our results are, um, are reliable.
2: That's really uh, illuminating about sort of the <laughs> internal dynamics of your uh, relationship with co-authors. <laughs> um, uh, so moving to your final empirical chapter there, you, you move away from uh, looking at attitudes towards democracy. Here you're interested in uh, attitudes towards state-led economic redistribution and the, the the relationship between religious outlooks and attitudes towards state-led economic redistribution. Can I ask you to briefly go over those results?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, we felt like uh, one of the core topics that, uh, uh, you know, in that, you know, in this uh, literature on religion uh, revolves around economic redistribution and some of the patterns that we see in the West. So We thought we definitely have to uh, explore that um, to, uh, to some degree. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things that, I, you know, that um, when we're going through this process, uh, that I kept thinking to myself is: should these religious outlooks really influence, um, uh, you know, attitudes toward uh, redistribution? And so, some degree, you know, uh, I would say um, uh, it's uh, very context-driven. Now, uh, in our, in our, uh, you know, it, with our uh, chapter five, the democracy chapter, there are very clear expectations. Um, our communitarian classes should be, you know, more likely. Uh, um uh to uh, uh be authoritarian or support authoritarian regimes or less supportive of democracy um in this case I, I didn't think that was necessarily going to be the case um and when we ran the analysis uh it's you know I, to be you know fully uh full disclosure here a lot of this is somewhat inductive right it's not it's not a we're we're I, you know i'm not uh, or, or we're not uh, saying okay here are hypotheses and here we're, we're testing them very clearly saying, let's explore what this kind of looks like and what we might expect. And what we see is that the communitarian classes tend to map on, tend to have a, a, a slight preference for maintaining the status quo rather than any kind of radical change, uh, whereas our religious individualists and post-Islamists have a greater tendency to support either much higher levels of redistribution or much lower levels of redistribution. And so that's our, our sort of first, um, uh, uh, the first set of analyses within that, uh, within that chapter. Um, and that's, the, I would say, the main, the main takeaway is that these outlooks don't really map onto uh, specific attitudes uh, necessarily, uh, but that there is a tendency for the communitarian classes uh, to prefer maintaining the status quo. And one of the reasons that we shouldn't necessarily expect uh, you know, a particular attitude is that context is going to affect this uh, pretty, uh, in pretty important ways. And then we do, so we, so we do a comparative case study at the end where We kind of do have clear expectations, uh, regarding these, uh, these attitudes. When we compare Tunisia uh, and Egypt. And the underlying argument here uh, is essentially that where, you know, you do have a history of religious groups playing an important role in terms of social service provision. Uh, it's going to shape people's expectations uh, with regards to who's going to provide these kind of mechanisms for redistribution. Uh, and and so um, uh, and that should affect whether or not people think the state should be that that primary cause. Now, there's there's a sort of uh, deeper logic, and there's actually a formal model here that we took away um, uh, that was in an appendix, and we, we kind of said, all right, let's save this for later, and maybe you know <laughs> do some work on it um, uh, related to this. But uh, uh, the the core the core idea being that you now when your expectation is for the state to provide. Uh, these kinds of things. The post-Islam, uh, and and there isn't really a robust, you know, uh, uh, um, social service provision mechanism uh, for religious groups, uh, here you sh- your expectation should be uh, that the state's provision of these benefits are beneficial for your groups because uh, um, uh, essentially it allows people to uh, to sort of, uh, it, it may encourage, and I don't, don't want to say this in a, in a uh uh, in a way that is isn't sensitive but it may encourage uh, people to go and, and join religious groups and free them up to uh, to do that uh, whereas uh, when religious groups are participating in social service provision here the state becomes a competitor with them in terms of that social service provision and um, and so, and so uh, I would say that those are uh, those are the main points uh, of that chapter
4: I, th- I think the nice, part about that chapter, I, I really like the way that, you know, it's it shaped up in the end because it really emphasized a number of things that we've been saying throughout the whole book, right? The context is really, really important and and attitude and attitudes are important, but they're affected in patterned ways and that it's affected by the relationship, the contextual relationship that they're in. And I think chapter seven maybe showed that as well as any of our chapters, the, this dynamic of the relational influence of religion, uh, you know, on the attitudes and the preferences.
2: Um, So can I ask you to maybe take a a step back uh, and think about what the implications are of this book? Uh,
3: There are, I think, a couple, right? First of all, um, and I I can say that we are very proud that uh, we show the academic world that, you know, things that we assume but without you know, necessarily providing evidence and testing are right, are correct. Some of those things are correct. Uh, So basically what we are saying is that uh, what we say should be understood as beyond the statement of obvious, but hopefully open a path where scholars are more careful in in dissecting such concepts as religiosity or Islamism and understand the richness behind these concepts, right? So this is one of the implications. We also are... I think I believe that one message that the book is giving is that Islam can mean many different things. There is this huge plurality and diversity to it. And one way we can understand this is looking at how different religious outlooks are uh, are being formed and how they affect people's um, attitudes. This is important because we have policy, you know, in the Western context, uh, that you know is based on this monolithic, one-sided uh, understanding of Islam and, and religiosity in the Muslim world. So one implication is that hey, policymakers, look, pay attention. There is really, you know, huge diversity. You should pay attention to the context, and this way you can have more informed policy in place. Um, so maybe Mike and Mamar have something to add other than this.
4: I think for I mean, you, you said you said a lot. Of, you said it very well, Sabri. I I think for me to like, we're be really trying to kick open the door on the discussion of like we need to do a better job of measuring this and being more open. I think the worst thing that could happen is that, that then people. Begin to assume that there's only four outlooks, or the you know like the this becomes the rigid thing that then everything is measured. I think that our purpose for our four outlooks was to to, to try to come up with a logical pa- pattern, a pattern that we could argue exists, you know, in, in theory in the literature, but also show, as Sabri said, the diversity among the faithful, among the religious faithful. We we it's not it's not on a dichotomy where you know for most of these models we're looking at the people that all express on surveys, you know, a moderate to high level of religiosity, and we see a very rich diversity within this group. But it's helpful to I think what our book points out is the diversity is there. Context is important, right? And there are patterns, right? We don't need to say, well, it's all it's random. It's not completely random. Of course, every individual comes to their own you know, positions, you know, somewhat independently, but we're also, we're all affected by our context and our situations in terms of how we, how we take what we believe and, and the nature of our, our communities and the people that are closest to us and how we apply that to our understandings of politics and and other preferences.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm just, uh, I mean, <laughs> as Abri and Mike hit on a lot, so I don't think there's that much to add. Um, one second, we can cut this out. <laughs> so, um,
2: and I think one thing oh, that, that uh, you haven't mentioned is that there's also value to uh, potentially scholars of religion and politics who are interested in other regions uh, beyond okay. uh, Middle East and North Africa to potentially sort of, use your conceptual or theoretical approach uh, to think about um, uh, uh, so the, if the if relationship just, between sort of religiosity and public attitudes and those if I could well just add something, someone,
1: I just had uh, somebody walking in <laughs> myself. Um, so, uh, I, I just wanted to note, like, the, uh, I, I just wanted to note that, um, in my opinion, there's been, uh, and, and this may seem somewhat harsh, but I think there's been a lot of lazy reasoning around religion uh, and religion's role in politics, and I think that's one of the main things that we're trying to combat. Right? That's uh, the the main goal of this: is to really think about how religion shapes people's political attitudes. And we've seen some, you know, some of the more recent literature has been much better uh, about this. But, you know, I'm coming from a background where, you know, the, the topics that I focus are uh, on are not religion, right? That's not one of the core variables that, you know, in my research agenda. But there's something that was bothering me enough to, you know, when I wrote Strawberry, say, this is one of the things I want to work on, right? Um, uh, and so, And I think there are a lot of scholars who work on the Middle East and work on other regions as well as you noted, um, uh, who, who see that kind of reasoning and want to sort of uh, provide a, uh, a stronger explanation and one that is more sort of theoretically rich.
2: I'm, I'm really glad you added that, Amar. Um, so just looking at the clock and realizing that we've taken up a lot of your time uh, and we don't want to keep uh, Sabri from his students. Uh, so I just want to ask you one final question, uh, which is, what are you all working
3: on now? I can start. I mean, so it is, uh, I'm actually still thinking about this, you know, plurality in religious outlooks, and I am looking um, into exploring it in a very unlikely context. I am looking at uh, the role of religion in medieval Anatolian state formation. Uh, So the the main, you know, project being about how different, you know, religious communities were instrumental, or detrimental to the state formation in medieval Turkey?
4: Well, Chair, uh, one of my projects that I'm working on right now that I'm pretty interested in, I've been thinking about a lot, uh, is related to uh, institutions, revolutionary institutions, and how they were developed in Iran. I think one of the interesting things that we're seeing in recent years is the... <laughs> The, the resilience of an extremely unpopular regime, right? With the, If if you think about the kinds of protests that happened in Iran from, from September till now, um, it's hard to imagine that a regime would have stayed on its feet after such a top to bottom social protest and such high levels of unpopularity. And so uh, what, what I'm looking at, now is just even thinking about those revolutionary institutions that they built that were kind of built off of Leninist assumptions. Uh, how how those create this strange resilience that that makes such a ter- such a un- highly unpopular regime manage to weather all, all storms. And so I'm working on a project on that right now.
1: Um, so I'm working on uh, right now two different sets of projects. Um, Uh, One is conceptualizing authoritarian regimes as ruling networks, and so um, uh, I I think uh, network analysis has a lot to offer in terms of creating new measures related to uh, authoritarian regimes that moves beyond the typologies that we currently see. Uh, a second set of projects relates to preference falsification um, and how we measure and conceptualize pr- preference falsification. Um, but I also hope that we'll return uh, to the religious outlooks work and we'll continue with some of this because uh, I, I definitely think there are uh, some neat options to... to. I'm also hoping that you'll
2: you'll continue to push this research agenda forward. Um, So those all sounds like fantastic projects that cover a lot of ground. Um, And if any of them wind up turning into books, I hope that you'll come back and uh, speak to our listeners about them. Um, So thank you all. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, Thank
4: Thank you for having us. Yes.
2: The book is Sabri Chifchi, Michael Wietrich, and Ammar Shanayla's. Beyond Piety and Politics, Religion, Social Relations, and Public Preferences in the Middle East and North Africa, published by Indiana University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.
4: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.